Great, good morning. Do please keep that passage open. That would be great. Fasten your seatbelts. We've got 15 minutes. Whole of chapter 9. Let's pray, shall we, as we, as we start. Lord God, we do uh, thank you for your word. And we pray this morning it would be uh, a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. And that Jesus would be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. Jesus says in the verse 5, I am the light of the world. And ever since the beginning of John's Gospel, we've been looking at over the past few weeks, Jesus has been speaking of himself as a shaft of light, breaking into the darkness, but pointing back to an eternal reality that can be anyone's who trusts in him. And yet right from the beginning of chapter 1, John and Jesus have been speaking about how this light will get a mixed reception when it breaks in. We've got a couple of um, pet rabbits at home, and we just got them a run uh, for the garden, and they love coming out of their dark hutch into the run, stretching out in the sunlight, soaking up the rays. They kind of go on strike if they don't get out into their run. They love it. But go and lift up a kind of patio tile um, in my garden, and what do you find underneath? You find millipedes, bugs, and they scamper off as soon as a tile is lifted back to the dark place, where they want to say. Some love the light, others hate the light. And we've seen that, haven't we, um, over the past centuries with with wars and rumours of wars that have gone on. Darkness uh, remains. Light gets a mixed reception. Jesus says he is the light of the world and so too he will get a mixed reception. And ever since the beginning of chapter 5, we've basically been seeing this mixed reception play out. So time and again, what does Jesus do? He speaks to the world uh, that he's come to, and again and again, the Jews, they push back against what Jesus has got to say. Often enraged, light shines in and people love darkness. Why is that? Well, here in chapter 9, Jesus essentially diagnoses what is going on in the human heart. Why the pushback? It's because of blindness says Jesus, almost unknowing blindness. We could say blindness is the human condition. I wonder, isn't that a clash with how often we think about what the human condition actually is? We often tend to be taught, don't we, that humans are naturally open-minded. We're naturally wanting to discover the truth, searching for it, attracted to it. And yet, actually, in these verses, Jesus shows us that while we might have curiosity, inquisitiveness... Our natural state is blindness. We're naturally unwilling to see the truth and to see light unless a miracle takes place in our hearts. And that's why this chapter, this miracle, this kind of interrogation that follows the explanation is such uh, great news. We see, don't we, at the beginning of the chapter, John presents us with a miracle. This is miracle number six that John presents. And as with the other miracles, it's a sign pointing beyond itself to a deeper reality of how Jesus will make the world a better place. This is a signpost that points to a miracle of washing that leads to sight. Washing that leads to sight. We're told, aren't we, in verse 1, that the man was born blind, not because of something he'd done or something that his parents had done. This is not karma at work. I think sometimes as Christians, don't we, we ask, when when times are tough, we say, what have I done to deserve this? That's not how it works, says Jesus. You don't always get 
what you deserve in that one-to-one way. Rather, this man was blind so we can see what God is all about, what the work of God is. I don't know what you thought, but when I was reading this, uh, and you think about it, at first glance, the details of this miracle are quite odd. Don't you think that? As, as you read them, often Jesus heals people, what, with simply a word or simply a touch? And yet here we have the details of the mud, the washing, the sending. You know, why? What, what's going on here? Well, blindness is a picture, isn't it, of sin in the human heart. That's a big Bible idea. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, God tells Isaiah that those who've turned their back on him will be made blind. But then later he speaks of a Messiah coming who will overcome blindness, heal sinful human hearts. It's a kind of light bulb uh, moment, if you like. Surely something more significant is going on here than simply the return of physical sight. We, we might then wonder, you know, why the washing with water? Well, why not just heal? Jesus has already spoken, hasn't he, uh, in chapters 4 and 7 about being the one who gives water that satisfies, that, that wells up to give eternal life. And then later in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of washing uh, as something that will be achieved as he goes to the cross, the cleansing of human hearts. So we kind of have the images of water coming together to speak of a deeper work that Jesus uh, is going to do inwardly to the human heart, an inward uh, cleansing. And then perhaps most curious, we have, don't we, this detail in verse 7, where Jesus tells the man, doesn't he, to go to, the, to wash in the pool of Siloam, which John sees fit to translate as meaning sent. You might think, you know, why bother with a translation? Well, repeatedly in John's Gospel, Jesus describes himself, doesn't he, as the one who is sent by God. That is the controversy that has been raging uh, over these chapters. Where is this man? Jesus says, where am I from? I'm from the Father. I've been sent by the Father. And now we've got this blind man. He's sent by the sent one to the pool called Sent to wash. Interesting. Did you see how the details come together? This man is being sent by the sent one to wash in the waters to have his blindness removed. It's a picture of a deep cleansing that only Jesus, the one sent from heaven, can do. And and since chapter 5, there's been this just pushback against Jesus and his teaching. It's probably something, isn't it, that we've experienced. we're, We're telling friends... We're telling family about Jesus, and you encounter that hardness, that kind of blindness, that real stubbornness that people have. What is it that can overcome that resistance? What is it that produces belief? The answer Jesus gives here is Jesus is the one who can produce belief. Jesus is the one who's the light of the world, who can break into our hearts, wash away sin and produce the sight that we desperately need. And the question really that goes on over the rest of chapter 9 is this. How do you respond to that news? To the news that Jesus is the light of the world. And we've got these two groups of people that I think really we're meant to compare and to contrast. Two different ways, if you like, to, to respond So we've got, haven't we, group one, the blind Pharisees, uh, whose sin don't believe 
uh, in Jesus. They stubbornly, they prejudicially, irrationally uh, reject Jesus. And what follows is a kind of public inquiry. Lawyers love public inquiries. A spectacular thing seems to have happened. And so the religious elite, they're called together to try and figure out uh, what's going on. At first glance, the jury seems to be out, doesn't it? So the man is brought before them, he's questioned, and by verse 16, they seem undecided about what's happened. So then the, parents man, the man's witness parents are called to the witness stand, and they confirm, yeah, he's our son, of course he is. Yes, he was born blind, verse 19. You know, we should know, we're his parents, he's lived with us for a long time. And then we have this bombshell, verse 22. Why are the parents reluctant to give evidence? Because the Jews had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. Isn't that interesting? This is no impartial jury. This is not a jury committed to the truth. The dice are loaded, the jury stacked, minds are made up, the verdict's being given, they're not going to be budged. And then when the man is called to the the witness stand for a second time, verse 24, their prejudice is almost confirmed in in what they say. Their blindness seems to deepen. And and yet the man's confidence, at times his exasperation, grows uh, through the questioning. He was just a blind beggar. These guys are the intellectual elite. But he sees right through them, and he loves kind of prodding them, teasing them about the irrationality of their position just denying the plain facts of the matter before them. For the man, the logic is plain, isn't it? Verse 30. Jesus, he says, opened my eyes. I was born blind, but now I see. And we know that God does not listen to sinners, only to people who want to do his will. And only God can do this miracle. Therefore, Jesus must be from God. And as he lays this logic out before the elite, it's almost like they're children. They just kind of stick their you know, fingers in the ears, going, you know, they're not going to listen to it. Or, or the person who's kind of caught red-handed, doing something they shouldn't be doing, that just kind of throws out accusations, that's oh, your fault, you messed that up, not me. You know, you're the sinner, not me. And yet the problem here is with the hearers, isn't it? And Jesus' verdict at the end of verse 39 is damning. Verse 39, for judgment I've come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you'd not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Pharisees are convinced, convinced they can see Their own kind of predetermined worldview determines that conclusion. Yet spiritually, Jesus says, you're blind as bats. They think their eyes and their hearts are in good condition, but in fact they're sinners. And because they refuse to admit their blindness and their prejudice, they remain uncleansed, unforgiven. Jesus, the light of the world, has shone brightly, And the Pharisees, like millipedes or bugs, have just scampered off to the dark place where they want to remain. 
It's almost like they've been blinded by the light, like a kind of car on full beam coming towards you. They're blinded and they can't see. This is the friend, isn't it, who is so convinced of their worldview, even though you show them the holes in it. It's the colleague who's not satisfied with life, and you can smell it, but they drive on with their life plan regardless. It's a family member, isn't it, who refuses to budge out of pride in what they think. It's the person who just can't face the change that Jesus is calling them to. Wouldn't chapter 9 be desperate but for the other character, the blind man? What does he do? He sees and he believes in Jesus. Something has happened to him, not just to his sight, but inwardly to his heart. It's a gradual process, isn't it? How how he comes to this. At first he doesn't know who Jesus is, verse 12. By verse 17, he's progressed. Jesus, he says, is a prophet. He engages with, he follows the evidence. And then in verse 35, Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man, the one speaking with you? How does he reply, verse 38? Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. 2020 vision. Jesus takes the initiative here. This man is helpless. He's not even looking for Jesus, it seems. Yet Jesus transforms him, restores him into someone who believes in and then worships the Son of God. The light has shone, and it's as if the man has walked out into its warm, life-giving rays and is just soaking them up. Those who do not see may see. That is what happens to anyone who puts their trust in Jesus. Maybe maybe you don't believe in Jesus. Take seriously what is being said in these words, in this passage. Jesus and John say there is an irrationality, perhaps a prejudice to your position. Not easy to hear, perhaps, but that is a testimony of this passage. Jesus says, come to the light. Don't just take the prevailing opinion-forming view of our culture, which is atheistic. Perhaps you're thinking, I do want to see, but actually I just don't know how to. Jesus says, you know, take the same demeanour as a blind man in this passage. If you come looking, if you come asking, If you come telling Jesus you want to believe, that is how eyes are opened. That is how sight is restored. Only God can restore optic nerves. Many of us here are Christian this morning. We've put our trust in Jesus. Surely we need to let this picture uh, deepen our faith in the wonderful things that Jesus can do. He is the bread of life, eternal life the one who pours out water that can truly satisfy, the one who can shine light into our hearts. must give us confidence, mustn't it? As we go out to the world to share the good news of Jesus, at times there seem to be brick walls all around us. If it were down to us, we could never persuade people 
of Jesus. But it's Jesus who shines the light into hearts. And because of that, we can have great hope. We can have faith. He's the light of the world who brings salvation to anyone who believes. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for uh, the wonderful truths in this passage. Uh, For Jesus, the star, if you like, of this uh, passage. He is the light of the world and he shows us in all its meaning what that is. Lord God, we pray that we would be people that are drawn to the light, uh, would want to know and trust in the Lord Jesus. And Lord God, that you would give us confidence in him, open our eyes and our hearts to him, that we would live for him. And he'd be glorified in our lives, we pray. Amen.